Sarah Tuhagar, who had borne her a son, who had suffered an old man heaving above her at night. To her, Sarah said, don't let the tent flap hit you on the way out. Rachel and Leah, hands at one another's throats, scrambling after love or seed. Sisters, sisters, never were there such devoted sisters. And where was Leah, or Rachel, or Zilpah, or Bilha for that matter, when her daughter Dina was abused? What said these wives of Jacob to the local women and children who paid the price? Did any among us stand up for Yiftach's daughter or rent her robes for the Levite's bride? It's been 4,000 years and still we fail one another. Not as the men tell it because of who we are, but because he who wields the pen wields the power and he who wields the power wields the pen. Because when our stories are told by men, they aren't our stories at all. Because when we are pitted against one another, what choice do we have? Kol Rama 102.3 FM. We are here doing a contemporary midrash. I'm David Goodman and I'm here with... Sivan Rothels. Sivan. This is a beautiful poem that you've written. It's a very brutal one. It's uh, like, uh, can you give me again the line about uh, how you men writing our stories? Because when our stories are told by men, they aren't our stories at all. Do Do you really feel it? Um, yes and no. Um, I think that they're ours because we have the opportunity to reclaim them. So I think as they were written, they weren't meant to be stories for or really about women. I think that generally in the way that we've inherited these stories in the edited versions that we've received, the women are generally acted upon and are used to further the stories of the men. I don't think that they were written for us. But, especially since the feminist movement in Judaism that began in the 1970s, I think that we are doing really powerful and important work to reclaim these stories, to rewrite them, to expand upon them, and to really make them our own. And I think that we have taken characters that were ignored and we've made them loud and powerful. We've taken silent women and given them voice. Um, I think that we really are doing important work now to make these stories our own. So, in some sort of way, if I am understanding, accidentally, some of the women character remained. And uh, you, in your poetry, uses it as a thread to revive the ancient story, or at least to find a way to, to tell it. Um, yeah, I think, at least as I believe it, and I think that at this point everyone has their own way of reading the Tanakh, but I think that because these stories existed for a really long time in oral tradition before they were written down, I like to believe that 
they started off once upon a time as being much more celebratory of women and that the women once played a much bigger role. Um, but then the patriarchy came into play and writing was invented and the stories started being written down and over a long period of time they were edited. And I, I think that a lot of what was edited out was the power of women and the centrality of women in society at the time. So I wouldn't say that the women ended up, we ended up with them accidentally, um, but I would say that the version of them that we ended up with is a very limited version that's usually there not to celebrate women's power, but to further men's goals um, and to further the stories as they center around men. Um, what was the last part of the question you asked? Was how you take like those thread and uh, reviving them Yeah, so we're left, I think, with relatively little, but all you need to plant a tree is a seed. So we take what's left and what survived and what stories of the women we have and what moments women appear in these texts, and from there we can create these beautiful midrash. We can really open up their stories and expand upon them and make something new that, that really makes these stories something that women can value and honor and learn from in positive ways today when you are doing it do, do you try to shape the characters uh, from the story that we do have like you gave an example of uh, of Rachel and Leah uh, fighting and Sarai and Agar fighting and you said that uh, part of the reason that we see them fighting is because of the narrative, uh, the patriarchic narrative. Do you think that you can reconcile those fighting in your Midrashim or you are sticking into the fighting narrative because this is what we have? In this particular poem, I wanted to write about women fighting with one another because I think that women being cruel to one another, women undermining and sabotaging one another is a problem that we have in modernity. It's a problem that women face today and it's a problem that clearly existed in the Tanakh. And so I'm interested in the fact that it was written that way in the first place and that it's still going on today and what we can learn about that long history. But I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that that's the entire story of the relationship with women. So for you, Rachel in Bilha is like second wave of feminism against the third wave and so on? <laughs> um, I don't know about that, but I do, I love to think about the possibilities that these stories, as they're written, leave un unanswered and leave open for us to explore. So what in the story, we clearly have Leah and Rachel fighting with one another for Jacob's love or to be the mother of Jacob's children. But I don't believe for a second that that's the entire story of Rachel and Leah. Um, and so I think I like to exist, I like my work to exist in the tension between what's written and what's unsaid. So I I think that I take both what's there and try to work with that, but also try to explore all of the many things we can think about that aren't there. What did the relationship between Rachel and Leah look like all the rest of the time when they weren't fighting? Because real life sisters today fight sometimes and have amazing, close, supportive relationships with one another as well. The Tanakh only gave us one half of that story. And here, uh, although you are coming as, the, as a 21st century reader, though, this is a quite old technique. This is the idea of Midrash. 
to find the holes within the story and to think uh, how you can use these holes to to input your own story within within it yeah so when I was really young my mom who was very well versed in these stories um, but I don't think was very well versed in rabbinic texts um, discovered the concept of Midrash and she explained it to me and she said Midrash is when there are two consecutive lines of Tanakh and someone the rabbis come along and write a story in between those two lines and so for most of my young adult life that was what I thought Midrash was and so I wrote all of these poems that just took two consecutive lines of text and wrote a story in between them and so now that I'm a rabbinical student and I am actually studying text I understand an entirely different world of what Midrash is. But in many ways, the concept remains the same. It's about, um, there's, the, there's this idea of the black fire of the text and the white fire of Midrash. So the black fire is the actual words that are written on the page, and the white fire is the spaces in between and what's left unsaid. And Midrash is generally born out of that white fire. Yes, I will just... Uh explain to the audience the symbol of the black fire and the, and the white fire it's actually a very it, it is a midrash on itself that uh, our own written Torah is uh, is an expression of uh, of an a more archaic Torah that God holds that is written black fire on top of white fire Why, while the black fire is the letters it's, uh, it symbols uh, the, the letters that we we can read but the white fire is like holds for everything that we can find in the text or even those things that we cannot find in the text um, but it's it is there and it is like a very important part of the Torah and this is the uh, black fire uh, on top of the white fire it's a very important uh, drasha for uh, Nachmanides uh, interpretation of the Torah he is opening his interpretation with this Midrash and uh, it's a very nice symbol so I just wanted to open it um, a few weeks ago, I was in your shiur uh, about uh, about one of the most uh, interesting uh, characters that uh, female characters that we can find in our uh, tradition. Uh, shiur about Lilith, uh, and after and, and after uh, this class, uh, someone asked you, "How can you deal with?" such an op oppressing text, uh, a text uh, that uh, for, uh, for 4,000 years uh, uh, tell the story of men and not the story of women. And you answered, um, though the story is a men's story, there are very interesting female characters over there. So I thought it will be a good time to go forward to another poem of you that uh, you deal m more with the different female characters 
within the text. Like this one was a, a great opening because it uh, deals with so many of them. But now I want uh, from the big story to go to the small story. Great. All right. This next poem is called Teraphim, and it starts with a quote from Genesis 31:19. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. And uh, I will just say that uh, household gods in Hebrew in the text is Teraphim. But you know why I took them. The seed, the salt, the heavy weight of power in my hands. Life lived like lightning, railing against the emptiness in my father's eyes. Because there is a world within me that this world will never know. Because once there was a torch, a promise. Because life is like a riddle, and I am like an eagle. All talons, all feathers, all rise. You know why I took them. You, are you talking to me? Yeah, great. So this is a persona poem, meaning that I'm taking on the persona of a character from the Tanakh and writing from her perspective. So this poem is written from the perspective of Rachel, and she is speaking. To the reader, to God, to her father, it's not clear who her audience is. And... And what is she trying to say? Great. So in this poem, I wanted to tell a piece of Rachel's story, but I was also interested in a larger historical thing that was happening. So teraphim, um, the word teraphim in the Tanakh, was generally translated by the rabbis to mean vile things. Vile meaning bad, evil, disgusting. Um, but teraphim were people's household gods, right? So they were small statues that people had in their homes representing the gods that these people believed in. So when I encountered this story, I had a lot of questions. Um, who were these household gods? Why were they in Laban's house? Why is Rachel taking them? And so the rabbis explained this away and said that Rachel stole the household gods when she left her father's home in order to destroy them so that he wouldn't continue the sin of idol worship. But I read the story very differently. Um, Rachel came from another people than her husband. Uh, I like to think of this as one of the first interfaith marriages in human history. Though they were cousins. They were cousins, but they were related on one side of the family. That's the non-patriarchal side of the family. It's the non-Abraham side of mm -hmm. the family. So I like to think of this as the first interfaith marriage. She came from a family that worshipped these other gods. And when she left to start her new life with her husband, she wanted to bring her family's household gods with her. Um, there's some scholarship that says that whoever had the household gods in their house was sort of the head of household and that she and so there's this idea that she wanted to take these this power her familial power with her into her new home and so she wasn't taking them to destroy them she was taking them so that she could bring her traditions with her into her new marriage with her husband um, and so 
I think of this as her having been wronged by not the Tanakh, but by the rabbis and their reading of the story. And she's speaking back and saying, I took these teraphim because I wanted to hold this power in my hands. I took these teraphim because I was angry with my father for having been a terrible father. And Laban as a character is really bad um, for having been a terrible father and for not having been there for her and for not caring that she left, but only caring that these gods were stolen when she left. Um, and so this is really about her taking her own inheritance into her hands and choosing to take that inheritance with her when she went to start her new life. So it's like uh, taking, if Lavan is the king, so she's stealing the crown for herself. Like you not deserve to be the king anymore. Kind of. Um, I personally think of Teraphim in a modern um, in a modern correlation as um, people who have people who are Christian who have cr uh, crosses in their home right if you're Christian you have a cross in your home that's sort of your home representation of your your belief system right and so this is kind of like if there was a big cross in someone's home and she left to go marry her husband she wanted to take that cross with her and put it up in her husband's home ah, okay so now it's not like uh, the one that told the teraphim is the ruler of the household um, though if you will go to this example of uh, thinking about uh, Yaakov and Rachel as an intermarriage couple I think that uh, it is still a very sad story because uh, first of all uh, there is a tragedy in intermarriage because no one can really uh, fully live his, his or her own identity wi within the household. And especially in, in such a scenario in which uh, also, uh, also the things that you do want to observe, you need to do as a secret. You need to hide yourself. Um, I appreciate what you're saying, and I'm going to respectfully disagree that in this historical time period, polytheism, which means the worship of many gods, was an inherently pluralistic, um, religion is not the right word, it's more of a cultic practice, but polytheism was inherently pluralistic, meaning that if I worshipped Asherah and Baal, and those were the foreign gods that I worshipped, and you came along and told me that you worshipped Yah, that you worshipped God, El, the God of the Jewish people, I, as the polytheist, would say, oh, wonderful, bring your God in alongside my gods. So from Rachel's perspective, there was nothing about going into an interfaith marriage that meant that she couldn't be true to her practices. She actually would be expanding the group of gods that would be in her in her practice. So why is she hiding the trophy? Uh, she's hiding the trophy from her father. Right? So she had to steal them. Her father didn't give them to her. He wants to hold on to the power that the Trophim represent, um, and she wants to take them into her new life. So I don't think that she was hiding them from her husband. I think she was hiding them from her father because she wanted to be able to take them, and she knew he wouldn't let them go willingly. Such an amazing story that comes out from one verse. <laughs> Great. So what I brought in here for you is a little bit of my methodology of how I write these poems. So generally what I like to do is I like to start with the, the appearance of the woman in the Tanakh. 
And then I like to read what the rabbis had to say about her. Then I like to read modern feminist scholarship about her. And then I write a poem that is in conversation often with many of these different layers of, of her story. So in this particular case, I brought in a source sheet um, that I want to share with you a little bit from before I move on to the poem. So you can see sort of the background of what I read and how I arrived at the poem that I arrived at. Thank you very much. Please do. Great. So this is about Shlomit Bat Divri. Uh, so it starts with her story in the Tanakh is in Leviticus 24.10. And there came out among the Israelites a man whose mother was Israelite and whose father was Egyptian. And a fight broke out in the camp between that half-Israelite and a certain Israelite man. The son of the Israelite woman pronounced the name, God's name, in blasphemy, and she was brought to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shlomit, daughter of Divrei, of the tribe of Dan. And he was placed in custody until the decision of God should be made clear to them. And God spoke to Moses, saying, Take the blasphemer outside the camp, and let all who were within hearing lay their hands upon his head, and let the whole community stone him. Moses spoke thus to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and pelted him with stones. The Israelites did as God had commanded Moses. Okay, so that's where she appears in the Tanakh. And basically what the story is saying is that there was a man, uh, half Israelite, half Egyptian, and he's known as his mother's daughter. Specifically, his mother's name was Shlomit, daughter of Divri of the, of the tribe of Dan. She's the one who's named, not his father, which is not normative in Tanakh practice, um, and likely was the case because she was the Israelite and her husband was the Egyptian. And uh, let's take back that probably in that time, the concept of conversion w w didn't exist yet. Like uh, we see even uh, more than thousand years later in the book of Ezra, that uh, that he that there is like some sort of intermarriage, and no one allows the other side to be recognized. Uh, a concept of conversion within Judaism is much later concept. Yes. So her son, this half Egyptian, half Israelite man, um, blasphemes, meaning um, you know, speaks out against God or takes God's name in vain, and God says that he should be stoned, and Moses has him killed. So that's the story in the Tanakh, and then we have the rabbis coming in and giving us a little bit of their insight in the story. So this source sheet, by the way, comes from Professor Wendy Zierler at HUC, um, and so any of the sort of commentary that I read is attributed to her. So this story might seem like an unlikely place from which to call a Mother's Day message. This post is about Mother's Day. Uh, but it is notable that the protagonist is identified by his mother's name. Specifically, now his mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. Such identifications rarely appear in the Bible. Given the anonymity of the blasphemer himself, why is his mother mentioned with such extraordinary specificity? And that's what the rabbis seek to answer. The rabbis say, we don't even know the name of this guy that gets killed. Why do we know the name of his mother? So first of all, Vayikra Rabbah comes along, uh, Vayikra Rabbah Amor 32.5, and says, And his mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Divri, of the tribe of Dan. She was called Shlomit because, as Rabbi, as Rabbi Levi said, she was very free with her greetings to men, saying shalom to you and shalom to you, bat divri, because she was because she brought destruction upon because she brought destruction on her son. 
Okay, so Vayikra Rabba reads Shlomit as a flirt, right? And I just want to hone in on like what it is that she said that was so terrible. Vayikra Rabba is saying that she brought the death of her son upon herself because she said shalom to you and shalom to you, right? So when we think about that in a modern context, like if I walk around camp and I say shalom, David, and then I run into Samuel and say shalom, Samuel. It's a very slippery slope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm clearly just being a friendly person, Um, but Vayikra Rabba was so ready to read a sort of misogynistic blame into this story that they said, oh, she was too, too flirtatious by saying shalom to everybody, and because of her flirtatiousness she brought this destruction upon her son so then Rashi comes along and Rashi says that Shlomit was a strumpet a harlot a, a loose woman so Rashi on Leviticus 24 11 says and his mother's name was Shlomit the, bo- the daughter of Divri it is to praise Israel that her name was publicized to say that she and only she was a harlot so although the, the story itself in Leviticus does not say that Shlomit was a harlot, Rashi is ready to come along and say she was a harlot. She was a loose woman. She was what we would call today a slut. Uh, and again, because of that, she brought this death upon her son. Yes, uh, we can see that Rashi is somehow referring to the earlier Vaikaraba uh, that you wrote. Yes, referring to it, but I would say expanding upon it, because there's yes. a difference between being flirtatious and being, you know... Um, a harlot. Being a harlot, yes. Uh, especially because in Hebrew it is the the word is even more it's it's a whore yes a prostitute prostitute, yes Okay, so that's the background, and then um, Wendy Zierler herself in this piece, uh, which is available on the Torah.com, uh, writes a really lovely midrash of her own, where she looks at Shlomit as a single mother trying to raise this son on her own, and asks why her son was punished for maybe something that she said, um, and posits that maybe it wasn't the son that blasphemed against God, but Shlomit, and that's why people are quick to blame her. Um, and so I had all of these texts to rely on. This is the background that I read. And then I wrote my own poem in response in which I wanted to give voice to Shlomit and let her speak back to the people who have been her accusers throughout history. So this poem is called Shlomit Gives Three Reasons Why. One, I gave myself freely as is my right. My body, my choice. Deal with it. Two, the wool was pulled over my eyes. What can I say? I fell for it. Careful, honey, my mother told me once. They all want the same thing. They may want it more than once, but it's still only one thing. Three, I had it coming. That's what they'll tell you. The way I loosed my lips, that friendly, how you doing today, smile. How I was always going about saying peace unto you, so willingly, I must have willed it. So quick to ask, I must have asked for it. She had it coming, they'll tell you. And when I bled for it, the fault was mine. And when I swelled for it and labored for it and brought it wailing into the world, when I lived alone with it and called it my son. And when he died for it, they blamed it on my mouth. But if you think for one second, it was my boy who cursed God, you've forgotten why they named me in the first place. It's just three different explanations that she might have. Uh, I just 
for me, there were so many different things that I could envision as being her story that I didn't want to limit it to just one. So there are three different ways that she could claim her power back and claim her story back from these men. And this is another very midrashic uh, method because the midrash can do one thing and then say davar something else. And yes. Start and they love threes. They love threes, yes. And uh, again, I can read the... Uh, so many contemporary issues uh, into into this midrash uh, uh, which makes sense when you when you are calling uh, someone prostitute uh, and blaming her for something that we don't know if it's a, a sin at all and of course it's not her own sin and uh, it's referring for so many things that are so actual about uh, how people will first of all will come to to protect the male part uh, of uh, of the justice court and uh, will uh, will explain how uh, how the victim probably brought her uh, brought everything on herself yeah absolutely once you read this story through the lens of the rabbis i think that this becomes a very early example of victim blaming so we have this story where what we know of the text itself is that this mother lost her son her son was killed and whether he did something wrong or not, um, that is a tragedy for any mother to have to watch her son die. So she starts off in the Tanakh as a kind of a victim of the system, right? Having to lose her son. And then the rabbis come along and say, well, she brought this upon herself with her behavior. She was asking for it. Um, kind of a very early version of, well, what was she wearing? So yes, this is a, I, I read it through the lens of the rabbis as being a very early example of victim blaming. It's a it's a very tough midrash for a t very tough story, and uh, because the idea of the midrash is both to raise the awareness for the difficult part, but also to to bring uh, some spirit and some softness into the text. So we are almost done with this very nice interview. And I wanted uh, to to finish it on a, a bit hopeful note. Uh, if we were speaking now about uh, about such a diseased relationship between the mother and the daughter and and uh, and the son, so now let let's try to think about the idea of becoming a family, not as a sin but as as creation as something good great yeah so this poem is not a feminist midrashic poem as the others are um this poem is called the whale sings to jonah and i sing to you and it was written um when i was nearing the time of giving birth to my son the whale sings to jonah and i sing to you i remember this your tiny foot, my giant rib, the way I paused and marveled whenever you shifted within me. Inevitable eviction, the tie unbinds. There is only so much space in this world, 
so much time, before gravity gives way to water, before water gives way to breath. And I bellow, and the sound is guttural, ancient. And though this body has been your refuge, you are on the shore now, leaving me to wonder, will you remember gravity and weightlessness, water and breath, how deeply we were moved by one another? Let's start with the, with the symbol. Let, let's think about it as a dialogue between Jonah and the whale. Yeah, so I don't think of it as a dialogue between them so much as um, the whale speaking to Jonah. The whale being a vessel for Jonah, something that carries Jonah along Jonah's journey, um, but in such a way that there's no way for Jonah to really speak back to the whale. So I think of the whale as some, in this particular midrash, I think of the whale as being very fond of carrying Jonah um, and of what it means to the larger story to be carrying Jonah and wondering, like knowing that Jonah is going to leave, knowing that Jonah is going to be spit out onto the shore um, and wondering what Jonah is going to remember of that time when they were together, when they were one. And going from the well to, to yourself, like ending this poem with the uh, question of will you remember while it's th this poem comes from memory like I guess you you didn't write it through your uh, through the time of giving birth uh, yeah people don't generally write poetry while uh, they're giving yes, birth <laughs> th 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 this is my guess uh, um, I wrote it very I wrote it very near to the time that I was going to give birth to Aiden so I was actually still pregnant with him when I wrote it but I was thinking after the end of you know nine and a half months of carrying him about what I was gonna feel on the other side and about what a marvel it was to be in this moment while he's inside me and we're one but then to be thinking about the separation that begins on the other side and and through the time of giving birth uh, do you feel that uh this poem escorts you, like uh, y you thought about it, it was on your mind? <laughs> like, like uh, I know it's not th thinking about it, but... Oh, that's so funny. Um, no, I can't say. I definitely think that this poem was a kind of a prayer and a blessing that in a way had maybe its light had enveloped me and carried me through the birth, but I definitely was not thinking about this or any poem while I was giving birth. <laughs> yes. Yes, and I, I respect your laughter. <laughs> yes, and, uh, and how do you feel now when you're reading this poem after, uh, like, it's been already almost four years? Uh, yes. 
Um, I love this poem. It's actually, I think, the only poem I've ever written to my son. Um, I tend to write poetry um, out of sadness or out of a desire to sort of right the wrongs of the world. And because my son is really, you know, as trying as he can be, as any toddler can be, um, my son is really mostly nothing but a joy to me. He is not a source of inspiration for poetry, which usually comes to me from pain or struggle. So um, I love this poem, which was this rare moment of a poem born of sweetness. Um, and I do wonder, I always wonder with young children, what do you remember of the time before? What do you remember, if anything, that you can't uh, elaborate on about being carried inside your mother's body? Or what do you remember about whatever it is that comes before life as we know it in this world? Because I think that there's something magical that's tied to imagination that children have that we lose by the time that we're adults and have the words for these kinds of things. So I still, just as I did before I gave birth to him, I wonder what he remembers of that time before he was born. And in some sort of way, I feel that uh, what you are doing in your poetry, poetic midrashim, when you are diving into this white flame, is in some sort of way doing quite the same process, like going into this stage that happened before the things really existed, when there was like a some sort of a special connection and a very like a mythical imagination that uh, we cannot really explain but uh, but it was there and uh, and in many ways like seeing your midrashim is like reading the text and finding some anchors and asking what those anchors reminds me of and here we are getting into the end of this very special interview and first of all I would like to ask if there is anything that you would like to add um I think that what I would like to add if I may get on my soapbox for a moment is that American Judaism today, because of its centrality of the synagogue, um, ensures that people spend a lot of their time studying tefillah and being in tefillah. And I think when people become quote-unquote serious about studying Judaism when they become adults, they tend to study Talmud um, and rabbinic texts. But I think in American Judaism, as opposed to Judaism in Israel, the study of the Tanakh is um, really limited. And I just want to tell everyone that the Tanakh is a collection of some of the best stories that have ever been written in all of human history. And if your only exposure to it is what your rabbi is telling you, what you're hearing in their Devar Torah, or what you're learning in Sunday school, you're not reading the good parts of the book. And so I just want to encourage everyone to take a deep dive into the Tanakh and really read these fantastic stories. And this is Sivan, that besides being a rabbinical student in the reform movement, you are also an expert in American literature. And uh, when an expert in literature say that you need to dive into a story, so 
I think it's a good suggestion. I would say thank you very much for being here, for giving us this so fascinating perspective. And uh, I hope we will find time to continue this conversation. Tada David, Gamani.